You're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. You can listen to us every Tuesday. GoodMorningComrade.com. Today in this virtual studios, we have Aaron and Robert. Hello. And we also have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce our special guest, Aaron? It's my dad. It's her dad. He's here again. Mike Huggins is back. This time he gets to talk to everybody. We are in the seat. We are not even in virtually together we are in the same space not social distancing at all we're not social distancing social proximity um and fun fact i am drinking water from a plastic cup that was my college ex-boyfriend's that has somehow made it through four moves Mm. he lasted a lot longer than he did huh (laughs) it's true it is true so how are you doing mike now so no hard feelings how you doing, Mike? Good to see you. Nice to meet you and talk to you for the first time. Yeah, thanks. It's really a pleasure to be here. I know you guys are doing great things. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I i wouldn't say I'm the most uh, liberal guy in the world, but I love your show. I told Aaron that, and oh. um, I think it's good. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you all. Thank you so yeah, much for just listening. Just to recap, we had him on early, like an early episode, like sometime, but like, one of our first 50, I think. Yeah. And um, except I was the one who interviewed him. So this is the first time that the boys mm-hmm. are also on. Yeah. So as a token female, I took I took initiative and I I, I interviewed this this accomplished mm-hmm. author and executive director, well, not executive director, founder yep. of the um, Transformation Yoga Project, mm-hmm. author of two books, yep. Going Home. And I can't remember the second one. The first one's called Going Home, a CEO self-discovery behind bars. Mm-hmm. And the second book is called Yoga for Recovery, a practical guide to healing. So it's a book, a yoga book for people who are dealing with substance abuse. Nice. Yeah. That's that's really cool. And I remember that conversation. That was really interesting because uh, a lot of that revolved around uh, working with people that were often like sometimes in prison or they had um, substance abuse, if I recall correctly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the genesis of my own personal experience, uh, not so much in the recovery side, but it, within the, um, the bowels of the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. um, yeah, starting this, this organization to go back into prisons, working with people who are dealing with pretty significant trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was pretty life changing for me. Uh, so it's, it's been a passion of mine to to uh, to do this work and start this organization, so mm-hmm. it's amazing to see it take off the way it has. Nice. Yeah, and um, for those of you who didn't listen to that episode, which I highly suggest you do, because I am a very good interviewer. Um, <laughs> um, my dad was in um, a minimum security um, prison camp for nine months. Was it uh, nine months? Um, mm-hmm. It's like ten years ago now. Uh, it's um, nine years, nine years ago, I was sentenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I had always had like a passion for criminal justice before that happened. But as you can imagine, like that's 
part of my reasoning why I talk about like prison stuff so much. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to bring you on again um, because um, there's, I mean, I think generally when we talk about prison and the criminal justice system, you're talking about like every different ask, like it's, it's the most intersectional place. It's like class and race and, you know, disability and all of these things kind of mixed together to make this one unholy nightmare system. Um, mm. And now that we've thrown COVID-19 into the mix, it's, it's a new, it's its own new thing. So mm. um, we figured we'd talk about that because we haven't really, we've been kind of focused more on, you know, the schooling and, um, you know, jobs and things like that, but we haven't really talked about prison and that's a huge, huge issue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my understanding is that um, COVID is sort of rampant in prisons. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I mean, look, of course, yes, it is. And when you think about the system, um, you think about what happened in these cruise ships. Mm -hmm. the, to me, there's right. no difference being in a prison than being in a cruise ship. You're in really tight quarters there. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got the correctional officers. You can think of the correctional officers. I'm not putting them down, believe me, but uh, or more like staff, if you will, like the, the people working the cruise ships, um, they've got to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you've got people in tight quarters, uh, limited space, limited access. Um, and, and we know what happened with the cruise ship industry and the people who were just lost at sea. Um, but because of social media and um, just people being not able to go home, there was a lot of uh, publicity about that. But mm -hmm. of course, within the criminal justice system, this is another one of our uh, areas we're not very, I think as a country, we're not very proud of. So we don't talk about it. We don't. And my um, guess, I don't have the facts 100 percent, but whatever is being reported is significantly underreported mm -hmm. um, as far as the cases of COVID go. And um, uh, so. Uh, it, just to, maybe just a little bit of background um, of how how we got into all this was that um, so I had my story going through the system and um, and we can we can delve there if you'd like just about seeing the injustices um, from a, a discriminatory point of view from a racist point of view and that was just you know uh, life changing for me in the sense that all the things that we talk about, uh, at least in my circles, we talk about, we've never actually had experience in firsthand. And, and being in that experience where the, you, you see things in black and white, I mean, firsthand, there's no way around it, just it is what it is. And no denying it either. I mean, you can't pretend yeah, it's not there when you see it right in front of your face. Yeah, the treatment, is the, how the difference treatment between the races mm -hmm. and, um, uh, that was astounding to me, quite honestly. Uh, but kind of fast forward, the organization Transformation Yoga Project, um, we have an amazing staff of people who are trauma-oriented train, trained, and we go back into, into the prisons, both on a, in jails. We have a, a program with the city of Philadelphia. We go into the city prisons. There's six prisons or jails in the, in the city of Philadelphia. Um, we work in the state system in Pennsylvania, uh, in Delaware, and we also are in the federal system uh, locally here. Um, and uh, what's happened with COVID is that, um, like anything else, right, there has been this quarantine. But in that system, the quarantine is is um, punitive in the sense that the there's 
look, there's, there's a lack of freedom for those who are incarcerated, the men and women who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And um, now with the COVID, they're being, you know, the men and women are being locked in essentially 23 hours a day for, for no violation. Into, for no, sol into solitary, kind of? That kind of well, they're, with, they're, they're typically with another uh, cellmate, right? Mm -hmm. So there's typically two to a cell. Um, that would be the classic for, for a general prison. Um, but they haven't done anything wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they're, 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 they're doing their time. We could argue about whether that makes sense with the sentencing and all that, but, but they're doing their time. Um, and because of COVID, they're locked down 23 hours a day mm -hmm. with someone, you know, in one other person in their cell. Mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine, I mean, we're all complaining and, and moaning a bit about, you know, going stir crazy about even in our own houses or mm -hmm. even going out to walk, you know, we're, we, we're this change in our lifestyle. You can imagine the pressure that puts in the system for those, um, those who are being um, uh, put away like that. Mm -hmm. And um, with lack of visitations or limited visitations, you know, limited programming. And so um, it's, it's really, to me, the definition of cruel and un unjust punishment. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about punishment and kind of quote unquote doing your time, it's important to remember that a lot of these um, facilities are full of people who have not yet been sentenced. So it's not mm -hmm. even that they're doing their time. It's that they're waiting to get in front of a judge in order to see how much time they have to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, for instance, Robert and I both worked at the Orleans Parish Jail. Um, and I, I think, what was it, like 95% of the um, people who were there um, were awaiting sentencing and hadn't even been you know, hadn't even been found guilty yet. What was that percentage again? What was that percentage again? Well, talk, explain that for people who don't... Oh, um, Louisiana is weird. So we call our jails prisons. Mm -hmm. So in anywhere else in the other, you know, 49 states. Or the like justice a, center. It's the yeah. Orange Parish so, Justice God. Center. A, pri a prison's where you go after you've been sentenced. Jail is where you're being held to, to trial. So just to mm -hmm. clarify that, like, we're talking about jails right now when mm -hmm. we say prisons in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, okay. and the difference would be in, in, in Pennsylvania. So there would be a detention center. Um, which would be sort of what you're referring to. The, those are individuals who have been who are waiting for trial and they are not, unable to post bail. Um, and that's another discussion we could have at some point, whether the bail uh, is a fair system. But It's not. Uh, it's, it's not. It's a scam. That, right. That's a spoiler alert. I guess no spoiler alert. It's not fair. <laughs> but, 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 but that's, um, that's what, that will, will be what we call a detention center. And the jails typically are um, when you've been... Um, generally found uh sentenced to found guilty you and it's usually a year or less time mm -hmm. you would go to a jail if it's longer time they say you're going to set up state you're going to be sent upstate mm -hmm. um and and generally speaking again here locally um you're actually better off being sent upstate because there's more programs they're they're they're, they're you know they're there you're there for longer which is the bad thing but at least they're they have different programs and things as opposed to the jails where it's really just a housing mm -hmm. um it's just a warehouse, unfortunately. It's a mm -hmm. warehouse of people, and they're just waiting for them to turn over so they can get the next person in and and spin it out. And mm -hmm. um, uh, so it's a that's a real problem in itself. But because there's there's zero, I mean, I didn't say zero, but very little chance of of, of programming for for people to get you know uh, support or skills to help them when they get out. It's absolutely the same in Louisiana. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, just to, so I was one of the ones running some of those programs and they basically would put me in the room, in a room with like 20 women, like three of whom would be actively psychotic at any given time and tell, um, tell me to teach them socialization skills. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, cool. Thanks. Wow. Like people just literally talking to themselves in the middle. Um, yeah. Or, and then we did have the really nice, um, were they the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses? Or Mormons. The Mormons. Yeah. The, the sweet little Mormon kids that would come door to door with books and then get uh, like verbally assaulted by grown men. So <laughs> it was fun times for all of us. Yeah. So I, I guess want to drill down on one particular thing, or maybe we can push this back a little bit later, but I, I really, we mentioned uh, Philadelphia and specifically they had a guy who came in as a quote-unquote progressive district attorney named Larry Krasner a couple years back. Um, in terms of sort of a, a response to this, uh, I've heard that some places were like releasing prisoners or people that were in jail uh, for like smaller crimes. Has that been the case with him? Uh, has there been any particular measures that he's taken to sort of mitigate? Uh, is he living up to the sort of... Uh, progressive prosecutor name if that's uh something that's actually real yeah that's a great question you know here's my take and and i know there would be others who would disagree with me on this but i think he's doing a pretty good job Mm -hmm. because he he's like threading the needle on this uh and so um you know philadelphia this area here has been pretty rough area as far as um justice goes and discrimination discrimination and all that so there's a long long way for the area to put in programs that are going to have a long-term impact, and so he and and so he's trying to balance um, the needs of of the families of of the uh, people who've had the victims, if you will, mm-hmm. their families, and they're feeling, hey, you know, we're not getting justice here, versus the families of the perpetrators who are saying, look, you know, this is not just, you know, we're doing the time, but this isn't fair, and so that. Um, he actually is doing a pretty good job, but he's had ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And there's times when uh, the progressives are, are totally supportive. Other times they're against him. And, you know, a lot of these things go up for when there's uh, clemency hearings or uh, who's recommending this and that. And, and um, that on a case by case, there's people who like it or don't like it. But I, personally, I think he's doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, I think that brings up the interesting point about kind of what we're expecting from individuals within the system. And I think this is a lot of the conversation around like the prison abolition is that, mm-hmm. you know, we're expecting, okay, we have this progressive DA who's going to go in, but is the, is one single person going to be able to change our culture around retribution and as opposed to, uh, you know, restorative justice practices? Um, like we're very much an eye for an eye type of culture and, one person is not going to be able to change that. Then also you have Philadelphia police who were marching with Proud Boys um, during one of the, uh, they weren't marching with, I shouldn't say that, but they did, um, they were caught on video telling the Proud Boys where the protesters were. And and actually, again, let me let me backtrack. I don't even know that they were Proud Boys. I think they may have just been some a-holes from South Philly. But it's all the same though. Like it, it doesn't, you can't, Bunch of John. It's, all, it's all a mass, like, if you want to call yourself a proud boy, you want to say you're like in the boogaloo movement, like whatever, like whatever you call yourself, you were out there coordinating with police to like do violence upon protesters and black and brown people. So yeah, it was, it was, it doesn't matter what you arose by any other name. It doesn't matter. 
Yeah, it was when they were trying to take down the Christopher Columbus statue. So it was a bunch of like South Philly Italian Americans being like, he's the only one we got. And like, (laughs) you know, they put him in jail like when he was still alive because he was so bad at life. But anyway, that's. Well, the thing about like you kind of turned it. I actually wasn't going to bring this up because it kind of straight off the topic. But since we're already there, like the thing about Krasner um, to me is that why I like him so much. Like I'm so jaded. It really shows that elections actually do matter Mm -hmm. um, to the point where it's like I was like, okay, great. You know, if somebody gets elected. But he said, you know, um, if if the if Trump sends, uh, you know, federal shock troops like, you know, legitimate like stormtroopers down down to Philly and they broke the law, he was going to have them arrested. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, elections actually matter. Okay. Yeah. So like, was it him or was, am I thinking of a different DA who just said oh, that they weren't going to prosecute anyone arrested during the protests? I don't know about that. Or I did, I, is that. That a, did I make that up? Cause I want that to happen. No, that's a thing that's somewhere different. though. I, that might've been even in New York. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Yeah. somewhere. But oh, Larry Krasner said that he, if, if they show up with, you know, federal with federal agents and they and they snatch people off the street, he was going to have them arrested. He did. Yeah, he did. And I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. You are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. The show is Good Morning Comrade. You can listen uh, more, get more information at goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, so in, in terms of um, you said so you say that they're locked down 23 hours a day. I couldn't imagine being locked in one room with one other person for for that long uh, at all. Uh, well, in a typical you, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's, so here's here's what I would say about that. I don't know if you recall, it was a big to do here a few years ago in Delaware, state of Delaware, where um, it's not COVID related, obviously, mm-hmm. but they were the the correctional staff was was dramatically understaffed. And so in order for them to secure the facility and provide safety, if you will, they did the similar thing. They locked down the population for like 23 hours a day because they couldn't do their, they couldn't do their uh, routes or you know, the routine, if you will, because they were severely understaffed. And um, you can do that for a while, but over time, it's a pressure cooker. You, know, you could just mm-hmm. imagine how much the pressure is building on us uh, and we have a lot of freedoms here. We, people won't even wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and yet we have, you know, we can at least go outside to a park. We, we have a lot of freedoms still. But if you're put in that situation where you have very few freedoms already and then you're, and you're in that lockdown, well, they had a big riot there and a correctional officer was killed. And uh, it, was, it was big national news. And, um, you know, they're trying to point the fingers at these correctional officers, but they were totally understaffed. Mm-hmm. And so the only way they could cope is by locking down. And it's just a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it's the same thing is happening really nationwide. When we're in that situation, you're, you're just adding pressure to that. Um, and it's, it's just human nature that we're, we're at some point, we're all going to feel that and feel somehow, how are you going to react to that? And we, mm-hmm. and some are going to react, you know, violently or whatever. So that, that, that is a really a, is a concern. Um, and I, and of course they're aware of that, but there's, there's limited, um, there's some limited activities that they can do other than starting to release people, which mm-hmm. there are some, you know, there's a movement to do that, but they're, they're nowhere near where they should be. Mm-hmm. So the obvious one is to, is to release, you know, nonviolent offenders or, or elderly people who are at risk. And that's happening, but because we were talking before we went on the air that just like the schools, a lot of this stuff is done 
at a local level of these decisions is similar as in the system. You know, uh, in the Philly system, there's, it has to go through a certain uh, judicial process, same in the state system. So each judge is making um, decisions based on what he believes is, is best in, in balancing community safety versus the welfare of the incarcerated population. And, mm -hmm. and they're, they're widely different answers, people's opinion. And so right. you've got some places there's been a pretty active release. There's other places it's like, there's like nothing going on, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that's, that's the, you know, uh, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, um, we're, we're, we're just hopeful that there's some way to release that pressure that's mm -hmm. that building up in the system. Yeah. And I think, I know, I mean, a, something good that could potentially come out of all this, like a silver lining is that, you know, everybody is so stressed out and, you know, are getting the taste of what it means to have your freedom restricted on like a very obviously much less level. But, um, I just remember when I was working at the jail, there was a woman there who uh, was like the bane of all of our existences. Cause she just like, she just used to smear feces like everywhere and just like mm. write rude things about staff members like in the feces, which was like its own thing. And I just remember she was getting her mugshot and it took four officers to hold her in place to get this mugshot. And her mugshot is just her face with four hands around and just her giving two middle fingers up. <laughs> and I think about that sometimes. And I like, I honestly hope that woman is doing so well. Mm -hmm. I just like, what a. Can you imagine her locked down for 23 hours a day? Can you imagine her locked down? Would you like to be her, you know, cellmate or whatever, you know, or would you like to be. I'm 100% not. She was very crazy, but. Uh -huh. um, I know exactly what you're talking about, Aaron. What was she yeah. in for? Oh my God. It was the worst thing in the world. She got picked up after a cruise. So basically what happened, uh, and this is oh, hot tip, okay, hot tip for anybody who's taking a cruise. If you have an outstanding warrant, they will arrest you upon your return to the mm. New Orleans cruise terminal. So some people don't know that they have outstanding warrants because it'll be like from something like a traffic violation mm. from like some, something a long time ago. But so every time a cruise would come in to the New Orleans um, cruise port, we would get like, 15 to 25 people um, like arrested and they were always almost always like first time arrestees and that mm -hmm. was my job was like to screen them for like to make sure that they weren't like psychotic or whatever <laughs> um, and she was the only one who was psychotic mm -hmm. um, and yeah she was there for like three months just making all of our lives like a living hell and like so I used to like really be irritated with her but now that I'm like out i'm like good for you good for you for really making us all work and like how you were yeah but what was the warrant for oh i don't even remember wasn't for anything like i, think was it, it, I guess what i'm trying to get to it was definitely an out-of-state charge was it for something, it was for something pretty serious thing. oh it was regardless of yeah. that <laughs> no Regar i think that that now actually no i'm gonna push back like that's not regardless because okay. uh aaron and i've had this like conversation before to where i i have a different opinion of the everybody's whenever i says you know abolish all prisons and i'm like oh i'm like i'm with you like i understand what you where you're coming from but you haven't looked in like the face of somebody who's like really who's really evil who's really done something bad or just not in and, control yeah but i'm mm, yeah, but I'm talking about like cold blooded. Like I'm talking about the guy who just like the guy who just killed that little boy, like kind of evil, mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. But the thing you have to realize is those people are so rare. If we could just like cut down the things that we criminalize 
and the things that we throw people away for and just narrow down on people who are like, you cannot sit with us in the sandbox that we call society anymore. Like if we just narrow down to those people, the prison population would drop by. And I know I'm being subjective because like we have to decide where, where that line is, right. but the prison population would drop by 90%. Yeah. I mean, like I went into, I went into my job at the jail as a full on prison abolitionist. I was like, I don't, I just don't believe in jail. Like I don't believe in the concept of jail. And then, I mean, we, we worked with like so many people, but I met four people the entire time I was there. And I can, I know every single one of them because they like made such a big impression on me that I was like, oh, I right. don't want to be in society with you. Right. Because like, if you were to get, like we had, we had a wall separating us. And I was like, if you could get out of this wall, like you would hurt me. Like, and I know that, like I, that is a hundred percent that is what is going to happen if that if like this interaction mm -hmm. and so that makes i think prison abolition a little trickier for me now like ideologically because i just i don't know i don't know what the right answer is because like i don't believe in capital punishment either but i'm like there are very few but like a few people that i was like oh you i don't i'm like i can see this person's face and i'm like yikes please i don't ever want to meet that person again but, but there's so many, but the thing is we, as a society get so terrified by those people. And I, I was talking to my mom about this, not that long ago. I think we we're talking about like abolish the police or whatnot. And she's like, Oh, you can't do that. I'm like, mom, the police can't do anything for you. Like, that's the thing. Like, like your son was a cop. Like you need to understand, like there's that guy who's out there. Who's like Michael Myers type. Like, who's just, he's coming to get you. The only thing we can do as a society is try to make it so our society does not create people like that. Wow. But there's nothing stopping that guy. Unless we're going to do some kind of minority report pre-crime, there's not like nobody can nobody can help you. So that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people to understand that, like, the only way to prevent violent crime is to a make sure like people's material needs are taken care of and then b try to like not create sociopaths that's a whole but the people that are in that we think we're doing like quote unquote justice like locking people away not because they've done they've done dumb stuff not necessarily bad things mm -hmm. they've done dumb stuff and usually their dumb stuff was logical it, the, their logic might not have been sound it might have been like the logic that propels society forward like it's not their logic is not compatible with our society. But the reason why they did that was was logical to them. You could put yourself in their shoes and be like, oh, I, I understand why you did that. So just to yeah. kind of circle back. Um, so I think we're making a distinction in the sense that there are people who can be released uh, from prison, especially considering I mean, they could be they could be can released from prison in non covid times even, but especially in this sort of. Uh, COVID-19 uh, situation that, that there are people that it would be safe to remove from prison because there are a lot of parts of our, like like laws in our society that are themselves, um, you know, they don't apply to situations that are, you know, violent or, or, or around violence or uh, some things are almost kind of like it feels like gotchas, like a like a like a warrant for, a, you know, having an outstanding ticket or something like that. Well, that's um, the thing is like our society, when you say like people we can release, mm -hmm. I don't even think you should look at it in those terms, because I, I remember reading the study or, or something like 90 percent of people in prison and jail are getting out. It's just they? what are they getting out to? Mm -hmm. well, and yeah. here's what out? Right. And here's where I think the, the hustle comes in, like the, the conspiracy is that like our society wants people. When I say our society, I mean, like capitalism wants people to reoffend. 
because that's how you keep the prison industrial complex going. That's how you keep prison slave labor going Mm -hmm. is because you need these people to get to, you need to get them in the system early. And when they do like get out, you need to make sure there's nothing for them to get out to. And then they go back to doing what they're doing and you can get them right back in the system. Mm -hmm. Other countries don't work like that. Like the European model does not work like that. But yeah, so there's a lot there. And let me throw my two cents into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple couple of things I'd say. One is um, when we talk about COVID right now, uh, actually I have some stats. I just wanted to kind of throw some numbers at you a little bit. But we talk about who's at risk, you know, for COVID. Uh, we always talk about the elderly. Well, you know, our the, the prison population is aging and um, it's a real problem. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem because it, for a lot of reasons, and, is there, and, and I think the, the numbers do show as, as they're aging, they're, they're certainly going to be less violent when they're released. Um, but let me throw a couple of things at you, for example. Um, in the general, general U.S., okay, um, about... 10% of people have asthma. In the prison system, state prisons, 15%. In the, in mm. the jails, it's 20%. Uh, people with high blood pressure in the general population, US population is about 18%. High blood pressure in state prisons are about 26%. Wow. In the jails, it's 30%. Um, heart-related problems in the US, it's about 2.9%. In the state system, it's 10%, and in jails, it's almost 11%. Um, what else? Uh, HIV positive in the US general population, it's 0.4%, and in the state and jail system, it's 1.3%. Mm. So those numbers are generally at a minimum three times the, the, the general population of the US. That, that's part of that population. And in addition, because I, I, I also have done some work with a, a traumatic brain injury, there was a study done in Colorado that 60% of the people in the, into the uh, state system had some type of TBI. Mm. Um, so there's just a health issue in general there. Um, and then you throw in COVID on top of that, um, that they're at risk um, for I mean, all the reasons we talked about. Not, it's impossible to, to socially distance while you're in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the question is, what are the avenues available to re- reduce the prison population? And you know, they're there, but they're very bureaucratic. And so they're, they're each, it's almost done on a case-by-case basis. And in, in a case-by-case basis, it's, it's subject to a lot of judgment by people who have very, very different opinions about how justice should be served. Mm-hmm. And so you you then have these same sort of things that you could argue are discriminatory, racist, whatever. I mean, there's something in there on how we roll that out when it doesn't, it doesn't really have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I mentioned, Robert, to your point is, at least here locally, when you're in the system, like, in the let's say the state system or i was in the federal system it's a system right there's a there's the bureau of prisons and there's a whole network of people there's a bureaucracy there there's good bad or indifferent but there's a system there there's no system for re-entry it's all a patchwork at least here of small nonprofits who are doing the best they can to try to provide um, services of how to write a resume or somebody over here is career link helping you maybe do some practice interviews over here, maybe help you to get housing. There's not a system 
because particularly when you're when you're leaving the Bureau of Prisons, you're out, and then they they officially sign you. They sign off, and you're done. Mm-hmm. And now you're released onto some probation system um, that is. That's a system of checking in with somebody, but as far as any kind of services, there's nothing there. And so one of the areas that we really could make a big difference is that if we had the same type of system, that there could be some type of reentry. And I know there's some really good organizations here, particularly in Philadelphia, that are trying to fill that gap. But, you know, as nonprofits, everybody's always trying to raise money. You know, we have our own issues with COVID right now. We're, you know, we, we can't go back into prisons because our, our yoga and mindfulness programs that we had a lot of people who had felt there was some value that Mm -hmm. they're not getting any zero program college Mm -hmm. education programs um they're getting nothing maybe they're getting a book or two Mm -hmm. um so um this lack of service uh as as robert said when they when they're entering it it almost forces you back into the same Mm -hmm. environment that that got you into trouble to begin with and 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 that's the thing i gotta pause what you're you're doing mike is like extraordinary but I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the position as you're at, at best. I mean, I should say at worst, what you're doing, you should be a government contractor. The, the nonprofit sector should not even go ahead, Jeff. You're I'm listening gonna... to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. Good morning, comrade. Sorry for interrupting, but we need to do our, no, you're fine. At the bottom of the hour. And at, I was going to say, and at, and at best, like those nonprofits shouldn't even exist. The government should have buy-in into, um, people getting out and being successful members of our society again. And that's what I, that's what I mean by that is it should be, it should be in the government's interest and anybody who might listen to this or any, any argument where people are like, well, you know, I've got to pay for college. Why, why should, why should an inmate get to get, I have that for free. And he broke the law. The thing is you have to look out for yourself in this situation. And like I said before, if you really believe that, okay, let me run this by you. So if 90% of people are getting out, who do you want to meet on a dark alley coming home from work? Do you want to meet a guy who just got released from prison and has nothing going on or, and, and knows how to commit crime and is comfortable with that violent crime? Or do you want a guy who's all, you want to meet that guy in an alley who also just got, got off from work from a job that, that, that pays him, yeah. you know, a living wage and is going home to his wife and family. Right. And, and to what add society another, do you want to live in? And to add another level of sort of uh, context to that, I suppose, is the it, like it, the cost of, of maintaining someone in prison and the cost of college are hugely disparate. It costs so much more to imprison someone for an entire year than it costs than it does to send anybody to a college. Yeah, it costs us money, costs taxpayers money, but then That's like exactly all what these I mean. corporations, yeah, are making money off of these people. That's exactly what I mean. And yeah. just to like, just to underscore like how little support people are given when they are released, I have had clients be released at two a.m. in the morning from the Orleans Parish Justice Center, which is like smack dab like right off of Tulane Avenue, um, which is like not always the safest neighborhood at night and just like, good luck. So it's like, think about it. You're, you're released from jail. A lot of times you don't even know you were going to get released from jail. So it's not like you had time to like alert a family member or anything. You likely don't have a lot of money because most of the people who can't make bail are people who don't have a lot of disposable income or any income you probably lost your job because you've been in waiting for your sentencing for however long you've been waiting. And they're just like, okay, good luck. 
Yeah. And you're like, just cool. How do I even get home to an apartment I may or may not still have because I probably was evicted because I didn't pay rent for three months because I've been here Mm -hmm. because I couldn't pay my $400 bond. And even give you a real real life example. So in my my situation, um, I was in a detention center for a while. Then I went to a minimum security prison. I had an incredibly good network, right? My, uh, Aaron came, picked me up uh, with my other daughter. Um, they brought a change of clothes, um, you know, and, but I can tell you that the day before I left, one of my friends left, he had nothing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we all chipped in, we gave him sneakers, clothes. Um, they have a box of like, uh, um, of clothes in the admin offices. So when someone's leaving, you just go, if you, if you have no clothes, you, you just pick out something. They give you 25 bucks. And this particular guy was going to Pittsburgh. And, you know, I don't know, I guess you can get a, a bus ride for $25 from upstate Northeast Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh. But um, I got only knows what's what's going to be on the other side of that for them. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, we tend to think about, you know, my my privilege, if you will, of, of having that support network there. So my, you know, like I had a reunited with my kids. We stopped at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, we went to the half, you know, the, uh, the halfway house, uh, checked in. Um, but, but so we sort of think that that's sort of the standard, uh, that happens, but it's not the standard. Yeah. What it's if you don't have family? Liquid. What if you don't have any kind of support network? What if you're just on your own by yourself and you got, you know, they say they give you 25 bucks. Yeah. That's going to last and, not very long. We forget, we forget that, like the white collar guys mm-hmm. put me into that generally get lower sentences. Yeah. And so I, I, I mine's a weird, a, a different story. Cause I had a, actually a misdemeanor. I wasn't even a felony. You could read all about it. But yeah. Going read, home. It's a very, very interesting story. But my point of that is uh, even the, the white collar felons, they, they generally get three years or something like that. Um, somebody does a drug deal. If they happen to have a gun, not, didn't use the gun, but happen to have a gun, it's at least 10 years, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're going to do 10, 12 years, and then they're going to get out. And that they may have a strong network there for three or four years. But over time, it's hard on the families, you know, yeah. to come visit all the time. And particularly when now with COVID, for example, it's all done by video visitations, limited. This has to be scheduled way in advance. You can't touch your loved one. Um, and so those those connections, those bonds that I had, I was fortunate to have all the time because I for all these reasons. Right. It's not it's not a given for the vast majority of the people. And so the longer the sentence, those family bonds or any that, that are it makes it more difficult for them to feel like they've got a, a life support when they get out. And then, so they are relying on the system that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it does get back to Robert's point. It sort of perpetuates this cycle of this industrial uh, complex, this prison industrial complex. Yeah, and you know? it's, you know, it really underscores, I think a lot of times people think like, oh, private charities will step in for a lot of this stuff. I think that's that's the argument that a lot of um, conservatives and like libertarians make. But if like in New Orleans, for instance, we um, the low barrier shelter was opened about two years ago. But before the, and the low barrier shelter for anyone who doesn't know is in um, it's a, a homeless shelter that um, 
that does not have any restrictions. So you can, you don't have to be sober. You, um, you can have a dog. They don't do background checks. Um, Mm -hmm. so anybody can be there. But before that, the only, um, the only shelter options available in the city were the Salvation Army and the Mission. And both of those are religious-based organizations. You can't be using any sort of substances to stay there. You can't, um, have had a violent charge, um, for some of them. Like, so if you were in for like, let's say, a a violent assault or a, um, a sex charge. And I think the sex charges are interesting because I think people are so like squick, like squeamish about sex charges. It's like, we, we just like, oh, well, of course they shouldn't be anywhere. But then it's like, okay, well, where are they going to go live? Like under the bridge? Like, so it, it drives me insane when I hear people talking about like, oh, how disgusting it is that we have these like homeless encampments. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, where are people supposed to go? Like, mm-hmm. I I understand like it would be like you have people who are otherwise like good. They they would consider themselves good, kind people who would just be happy to have people like disappear. So they never have to think about them again. Like Like, as long as they don't see the people living under the bridge, they don't care what happens to them. Yeah, It's like the the Simpsons uh, episode where the old the old homeless man turned into a mailbox. Yeah, That's what they want. I, I haven't I've seen, seen it, but time. that sounds exactly like what a lot of people <laughs> like. I can't tell you how many people who simul- in, in one breath will talk about people being lazy and that we shouldn't be having like government um, handouts. And then on the other breath will be really angry that the mayor hasn't done anything about the people living under the bridge. Yeah, and like, OK, but like I, just so you know, like from my own personal experience, how I know this is a scam. It's that, um, so when I was in the Marine Corps, I did, you know, four years in the Marine Corps, we had a transition assistance program. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like good, but like the government recognized like, oh, these people are like living a different life than like normal people on the street every day. Well, I mean, I had, when I was in the Marine Corps, we, you know, my main concerns were like, when's the new Madden coming out? Like, getting together with your boys and drinking beers. Like, what did I need to transition to? You know, it was just like, go get a job. But they thought it was important that I like, I I attended these classes and I was just in the Marines. So imagine somebody in literal prison Mm -hmm. who has no idea what's going on in the outside. They're they're only things they have to know about anything is like from that TV that's on one channel all day and maybe like whatever books or like periodicals they get in. They have, they have no skills, no nothing. And we don't feel that it's appropriate to have a, a transitional assistance program for them. It's just a matter of will. It's like, where do we want our money to go? Mm-hmm. It's scary. Yeah. Imagine, like, imagine if somebody you were, let's say you were in a coma for like, that like 25 years, which is a, an assault charge. And then they're like, hey, wake up and get a job. And you're like, Okay. I mean, like there are people and it really, I don't remember who I was even talking to, but like someone I had met and I can't remember if it was at when I was visiting you or what was um, at the jail I worked at, but like people, they had never seen a smartphone. Yeah. They've been like down so long that they just had never. So it's like, imagine go having gone to jail before a smartphone came out before blackberries like back in the day. <laughs> and then now coming out and being expected to work, a customer service job where like, let's say at McDonald's where everything is done via touchpad. Now it's like, even the jobs that are considered like, Oh, anybody can do this, like higher off the street. It's like, you need some level of technology, like technological literacy that is just not available. And then everybody is like, Oh, what a shame. They didn't turn their life around. It's like, what? What? (laughs) They were never supposed to. 
and, and yes, yeah, so the thing I would say is, um, Robbie, you said they don't have skills. I think that you know I, I might take a little exception with that only only in that that there's definitely um, there's definitely a will there. Um, you know, I can't think of and and I don't mind. I wasn't deep into the system and all that, but uh, I saw a lot. But my short time there, almost everybody has a desire, um, you know, to be productive in society somehow, you know, and um, they're searching for skills and deep down they have skills in something. The question is, can we, can, how can we help them refine their skills? Like just like in our everyday lives, how do we find a job or a, a, a career that fits, you know, we each have, we each have unique personalities. What, what's really going to resonate with you or me or, or Aaron? Um, it's the same for all of us. Right. And so there, there's, there's, there's a need, there's a desire, there's skills there. The question is how can we help direct them um, so that they can um, find something that's going to match what they're um, internally, what, what what's going to what resonate with them. So it'll be, they'll be enthusiastic while they're trying to, claw their way back, you know, starting at the bottom and working up. So if if we can put together some basic programming, um, at least from what experience we've seen, there's there people are, have amazing capacity, you know, potential and all that. We just don't have the, I don't know, the enough opportunities so mm-hmm. that they can get to that next step. Um, yeah, what do you go to? What do you go to when you get out? Is like what you're saying. We don't like, and, and you're right. There, it's it's not even a question of skills because skills can be acquired, but it's a sort of, uh, sort of like a shock of being dropped into something that that a society that you've not been able to adapt to because of the fact that you've been in this sort of like isolation for such a long time. Is that sort of like what you're getting at here? Yeah, that's, that's what I was, that's what I was getting as the more like man out of time. Kind no, of but no, I, I, I not, not actual like, yeah, skills was probably the wrong way. I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying though, Mike, they're like, that's a hundred percent correct. Uh, before we make our next point though, Aaron, can I just toss the station ID one more time? Oh, you're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3 is good morning, comrade. You can listen on good morning, comrade.com. The station ID wants us to not have good conversations. So I'm just saying, it's always interrupting us. I just I mean, to plug know, it in. So you think when someone someone is <clears throat> released, whether and even now, I mean, this, this is the, this is a real issue right now because of COVID. Because there are efforts to reduce the prison population, mm-hmm. but I think Robert, your original point is to what, right? So so what are they? So we're making an effort to release. We're we're just moving the problem into the society, into the communities, because we haven't, we're not providing any service or support for them. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and because we are relying on nonprofits by and large to do that, they have their own problems with COVID. The, you know, the, the, the nonprofits are a patchwork of things and there's a lot of networking support, but they have their own problems, funding, administration, you know, it's just, it's a different network, if you will. Um, and so I think there is a lot of, of, um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are enthusiastic. This is their opportunity, you know, to come back to really uh, be productive in the community. And if they're not, if there's no support mechanism, they can they can become frustrated, saying, you know, well, this is all there is, you know. Well, shoot, you know, um, it's it, it's it's not it's not always conducive for them to kind of to to move forward in a, in a real productive way. And, right. At least they feed them in jail because it's 
there's a will if there's a will there and by and large there's a will for the people most people don't say oh shoot i want to go back you know there's a few right. but there's by and large they don't um and so it's shame on us because we're not providing that opportunity because as robert said before it's actually over 90 i think it's like 96 percent population the prison population is going to be coming back into our community you know and also this yeah. is i think also it kind of shows some of the the inherent issues with like the culture clash between kind of like, I mean, and how nonprofits can be band-aid solutions sometimes because, so when we're talking about skills kind of earlier, yeah, a lot of people don't have the skills that society recognize that as skills. And that's that's a cultural issue. So I'm thinking about like some of the, the people I worked with and like how they knew every single little bit about the politics of their tier and they knew everything about everybody and they knew like, okay, well, if you put this person with this person, this is what's gonna happen. Like those people would make amazing political operatives, but that is not considered like that's not valued. That is like that skill set, that ability to to kind of look at people and analyze people and kind of know that that often comes out of like that survival me- like mode um, isn't considered a skill. And so one thing I like I used to do with the juvenile t- um, offenders who, which like we should. I have a lot of feelings about the fact we're keeping 15 year olds in an adult jail, but like that's that's a different conversation. Um, we would do intelligence tests. And because our society doesn't value different kinds of intelligence. So we have like the kind of book smart intelligence, like being smart at math or being good at reading and good at writing. Like those things, you know, we, we value, but musical intelligence, we don't value creative intelligence. We don't value person to person intelligence. We don't value it's, it's one of the reasons why I have a master's degree and have to work two jobs because to make a middle-class salary, it's because they don't like, being good at interpersonal relationships is not valued in our society. And so a lot of times people have just been told that, oh, because they're not good at kind of traditional schooling, it doesn't even, they may actually even be good, like smart in math and science. It's just, they had like traditional schooling hasn't worked for them, but they're told that they're not smart and that they don't have intelligence and that they don't have skills. And so it's important to like, this is something that happens way before incarceration, but this is something that needs to be happening within like preschools is this, the emphasis on there are different types of intelligence and everybody is intelligent in something. It's just, what is it that like, what is your strongest suit? And we need to get society to kind of rally around that because yeah, like, I mean, it's always like, that's the thing people are saying, like drug dealing is hard. It takes a lot of math. It takes, you have to know fractions. Like you have to know that there's a lot of skills involved in a lot of criminality. Mm-hmm. It, they're just not skills that societally we value. So if we could just like recognize that somebody who is good at something that is illegal could be just as good at something that is legal if we change our focus if we, like let's say okay maybe it's a job that traditionally has needed a college degree it's like okay well you know that keeps a lot of people out like how how do we that's what i think i think that we need this nonprofit network because people are in need right now but i just worry that our focus is so completely on kind of the band-aid solutions that people aren't as focused on how do we change this so that people in the future don't have the same issues. Yeah, we're not building a structural alternative or, f- yeah. or, or something to structurally fill that space. Um, because yeah, you, like, like, like Mike said, it's just a patchwork. 
Well, it's like one of the things I like about your program is and, that mindfulness is like, is a build, like that is what we do in therapy. And, so and, like somebody can get a mindfulness basis and they can then use that like later on. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and to press on that point a little bit too, about, about these um, nonprofits filling the space, sta- the, the, the space that the state could and should, in my view, at least, uh, they're almost kind of like a de facto contractor for the state in the sense that they are providing this service uh, by, you know, getting grants or raising money or whatever. Um, but they're sort of like doing that for the state in a nominally so, but they're doing it sort of like with this sort of with this break, with this understanding that the narrative is that that those play things are going to be there. So it's almost like a like a de facto like not a not a not an official kind of a contracting position that they take. Maybe yeah. maybe that's controversial, but that's what I see. No, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Because mm-hmm. you you have contract. I mean, like your contracts are with the city. We have, yeah. But so what happens is, uh, like a lot of nonprofits, is the 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 grants don't cover your costs. Mm-hmm. So you're you're constantly in. Um, position of asking for donations and, and raising money, fundraisers, all that. And so you've got to add resources there. And it's actually fairly inefficient um, mm-hmm. to to be trying to do that. And, and look, we, we could talk another whole time about nonprofits. There's just too many nonprofits uh, out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there's and nonprofits don't have the incentive to work together because they everybody's with trying one another. to corner their money because it's it's sacred. It's it's, it's scarce, not sacred. It's scarce, mm-hmm. and so there's there, you would think these nonprofits would collaborate all the time. There's some a lot when when it when they're not viewed as competitors, but mm-hmm. a lot of times they're viewed as competitors, and so you don't get the synergies that you think you ought to get in a nonprofit community. At least that's my view. I mean, that's a little bit cynical, and we have a lot of great nonprofits that we work with, but um, everybody's always sort of focused on, you know, um, where's where's the next grant coming from mm-hmm. and what's happening now. And right, and as an aside, there's a huge scramble going on right now because this COVID uh, the, there's money being thrown everywhere. Nobody knows what to do with it. And it's it's another example of we're throwing money at something without a strategy or a plan. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to this money is going to be spent and it's probably not going to achieve the objectives that it could have achieved if it was a focused, thought out strategic effort behind us. So mm-hmm. that's that's my business hat on. It gets very frustrated when I see us throwing money at things when without um a game plan. Well, and, and, and we know that the state, like either, you know, the, the, the federal or the state government can implement those kinds of plans when they want to. Uh, the, the thing becomes, and this sort of like bring us back to the beginning of the conversation, when all of these sort of um, projects uh, do kind of like get them funneled down to each individual locality, there's a lot more randomness that can take place on the local level because you have different competing uh, more, I guess, more local, you know, sets of carrots and sticks within that, within that part of the society. You know, it's, it's, it, it makes things a lot more erratic and, and there's a lot less uh, coherence to that kind of approach. Yeah. And the same is true in the system itself. So even here in Pennsylvania, there's, there, I, I can name prisons that state prisons, that are doing a really good job, very progressive in trying to deal with COVID, very progressive on trying to provide programming because they have very progressive leadership. 
And that makes a difference. And to Robert's point, you know, elections do matter and people who manage and matter. They do. At the end of the day, they matter. And I can tell you other places where there's just hard lines and they, you know, the, it's not about a rehabilitation. It's all about just punitive de- uh, punishment. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, hurt going on there. There's a lot of death going on. Um, and so it's the same, you know, the, we always say that the problems that are in the prison system are the same problems we have in, in our community. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just more focused and more yeah, intense. Amplified to a real extent. And it's in a similar way that you can say that COVID reveals a lot of the values and structures that are uh, in our society. Like it just sort of exacerbates them. The, the more extreme components of our society are already... It's the, privileged, the privileged and those who aren't are underprivileged. Mm-hmm. It's it's just highlighting income disparities. All Yes, all, it, exactly all that. Yeah. See, see, he says he's not... He says he's not as progressive as we are, but like we're we're talking class war. Yeah, we're well, talking yeah. classes. I don't care what people call themselves, honestly. I mean, as long as they're you know that they can be you know talk things through on these sort of you know, the grounds. And I really do appreciate you talking with us, Mike. Thank you. Uh, and where can we find you? So, so the organization is called the Transformation Yoga Project, and it's that's our website too. It's transformationyogaproject.org, and. Um, so we work in the prisons and recovery centers. And um, if you're interested in my, my personal story, uh, the book is called Going Om, O-M, a CEO's self-discovery behind bars. So that's also, you can find that on my website, which is goingomebook.com. Uh, it's on Amazon and Google and Apple, all those places. So, um, and then you can reach out to me on, on my website. Uh, goingomebook.com and I'm reach out, talk to anybody. I'd love to talk with you. He's anybody. really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Mike. Uh, thank you. You can listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WHIV FM uh, 102.3. You can listen online, whivfm.org slash listen. Get more information about our show, goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, anything else before we go, guys? I got nothing. All right. Well, love you, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.